From New York, this is Democracy Now! No persons have received a majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname. A speaker has not been elected. Following the procedure used by the House in 1923 and recorded in Canon's Precedents, Volume 6, Section 24, the clerk is prepared to direct the reading clerk to call a roll anew. The new Republican-led House adjourns day one without a speaker as Kevin McCarthy loses three rounds of voting. We'll look at McCarthy and the Republicans blocking him with New York Times reporter Robert Draper, author of the new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. And we'll speak with American Prospect editor David Dayen about how the House GOP plans to try to cancel congressional staff unions in one of its first moves, and why he says 2023 is a year for executive action after Democrats frittered away the lame duck session. Then Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin remains in critical condition in a Cincinnati hospital two days after suffering a cardiac arrest on the field Monday night during a game against the Cincinnati Bengals. It was just a surreal moment. I was scared. Um, Like, I'm a Bengals fan, so I was really praying really hard that everything was okay, and I still am. It's such a sad thing to notice and watch, and um, I feel like the world just stopped at that moment. We'll speak with former NFL player Dante Stallworth, who was at the game and saw Hamlin collapse, and with longtime sports journalist William Roden, author of $40 Million Slaves, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Black Athlete. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. On Capitol Hill, far-right lawmakers have blocked Kevin McCarthy's initial attempts to become Speaker of the House. In a dramatic day on Tuesday, the House held three votes to pick a new Speaker. McCarthy fell short each time of securing the needed 218 votes, even though Republicans now hold a slim majority in the House. On the first two ballots, 19 Republicans opposed McCarthy. On the third ballot, the number of defectors increased to 20, with many backing Congressman Jim Jordan to be the next speaker, even though Jordan himself nominated McCarthy before the second round of voting. This marks the first time in a 100 years since 1923 that voting for speaker went beyond the first round. After the third vote, the House voted to adjourn until today at noon. No person having received the majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname, a speaker has not been elected. For what purpose does the gentleman from Oklahoma rise? Move to adjourn until noon tomorrow. The question is on the motion. The question is on the motion. All those in favor say aye. All those in favor say aye. aye. All those opposed, no. All those opposed, no. No. 
The ayes have it. The motion is adopted. The House stands adjourned until noon tomorrow. It's unclear how long it could take for the House to pick a speaker, but until one is chosen, the House cannot conduct other business, including the swearing-in of new House members. We'll have more on the chaos in the House of Representatives after headlines. In other news from Capitol Hill, Senator Patty Murray made history Tuesday by becoming the first woman to serve as Senate President Pro Tem. This now puts her third in the line of presidential succession after the vice president and the Speaker of the House. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has announced retail and mail-order pharmacies can now sell the abortion pill mifeprestone directly to patients with a prescription. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists held the move in a statement the group said, quote, although the FDA's announcement today will not solve access issues for every person seeking abortion care, it'll allow more patients who need mifeprestone for medication abortion additional options to secure this vital drug they said. The Russian defense ministry has now admitted at least 89 Russian soldiers were killed in their barracks on New Year's Day in a Ukrainian missile strike on the Russian-occupied city of Makivka. Russian authorities believe Ukraine was able to determine the exact location of the troops by picking up signals from personal cell phones, which were being used by Russian troops without authorization. Ukraine has claimed as many as 400 Russian soldiers were killed in the attack there. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials are also claiming to have killed or injured hundreds of Russian troops in a separate attack in occupied Kherson the night before on New Year's Eve. This all comes as Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is expected to hold calls today with both Russian President Vladimir Putin and the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Erdogan has offered in the past to mediate a ceasefire in Ukraine. The United Arab Emirates and China have called for the United Nations Security Council to meet after Israel's new far-right national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, visited the Al-Aqsa Mosque and occupied East Jerusalem. His visit was condemned across the Middle East. Jordan summoned Israel's ambassador to protest the visit, which Jordan's foreign ministry described as scandalous and an unacceptable violation of international law. Meanwhile, Israeli forces shot and killed a 15-year-old boy named Adam Issam Shaker Ayad in a refugee camp outside Bethlehem Tuesday. According to the group Defense for Children International Palestine, Adam is the second Palestinian child to be killed by Israel since the start of 2023. The U.S. Embassy in Cuba will begin processing immigrant visas in Havana today for the first time in over five years. Visa and consular services have been closed on the island since 2017. This comes as a growing number of Cubans are trying to reach the United States, as Cuba continues to suffer economic fallout from decades of U.S. sanctions. Over the weekend, at least 500 Cuban asylum seekers arrived in makeshift boats in South Florida. Many landed in Dry Tortugas National park in the Florida Keys, leading authorities to temporarily close the national park. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro has said he's ready to move toward normalizing relations with the United States. He also urged Washington to stop engaging in what he called, quote, foreign policy blackmail. Maduro made the comments during an interview on January 1st.
Con Estados Unidos y Norteamérica. With the United States, they are unfortunately trapped in a policy on Venezuela that makes no sense. In supporting institutions that don't exist, an interim president of an assembly of Narnia, which they keep on supporting. In one way or another, the foreign policy blackmail from Florida from Miami holds ground in the White House and the Department of State. It's unfortunate. Venezuela is completely prepared to take a step towards the normalization and regularization of diplomatic, consular and political relations with the United States and subsequent governments. President Maduro's remarks came just days after opposition lawmakers in Venezuela voted to terminate the interim government led by the U.S.-backed opposition leader Juan Guaido, who declared himself interim president of Venezuela three years ago. In California, incarcerated people are now able to make and receive free phone calls. The Keep Families Connected Act went into effect January 1st. The nonprofit Worth Rises estimates that at least one in three California families went into debt to maintain regular contact with incarcerated loved ones as prison telecommunication corporations made millions of dollars in profits. California is the only the second state in the United States to enact such a law after Connecticut. Several major cities, including New York and Los Angeles, have similar policies in place at a local level. This comes as new federal legislation could curb the cost of prison phone calls nationwide following its passage by Congress last year. This bill is now on President Biden's desk. On average, a 15-minute prison call costs over $5, with some prisons charging a dollar or more per minute. In Missouri, Amber McLaughlin died by lethal injection on Tuesday night, becoming the first openly transgender woman executed in U.S. history. Her plea for clemency was denied despite detailing a history of childhood abuse and struggles with severe mental health issues as an adult, evidence that was ignored in her 2006 murder trial. The jury was deadlocked over her sentencing, but Missouri law allows the trial judge to issue a sentence in those cases, including the death penalty. In a final written statement, she said, quote, I am sorry for what I did. I am a loving and caring person. She was 49 years old. Here in New York, Sam Bankman-Fried, the disgraced founder of fallen crypto exchange FTX, has pleaded not guilty to federal fraud and money laundering charges. Bankman-Fried was arrested by U.S. authorities in the Bahamas last month, but was released on $250 million bond and allowed to temporarily live at his parents' home in Palo Alto, California. Bankman-Fried is accused of violating federal campaign finance laws and orchestrating a massive scheme to defraud customers and lenders. FTX's collapse in November has been compared to the Ponzi scheme overseen by disgraced financier Bernie Madoff. Federal Election Commission data show Bankman-Fried was the second largest campaign contributor in the 2022 midterm elections, with nearly $40 million given to Democratic campaigns and super PACs. Bankman-Fried's trial is tentatively scheduled for October. He faces up to 115 years in prison if convicted. 
Buffalo Bills player Damar Hamlin remains in critical condition in a Cincinnati hospital two days after he suffered a cardiac arrest on the field Monday night during a game against the Cincinnati Bengals. The 24-year-old African-American player collapsed after making a tackle. According to his family, Hamlin is sedated and on a ventilator after having been resuscitated twice on Monday. A large vigil was held for Damar Hamlin in Buffalo, Tuesday. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast. In Brazil, mourners lined up for over a mile on Tuesday to pay respects to soccer legend Pele, who died last week at the age of 82. Pele was buried in the city of Santos in the world's tallest vertical cemetery, which overlooks the stadium where Pele first rose to fame. Brazil's new president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, spoke at Pele's funeral Tuesday. Pelé symbolizes everything, the rise of the human species. Everything that we can perceive and want from the rise of the human species was Pelé. He was a very young player who gained an extraordinary protagonism. And the most fantastic thing is that Pelé never tried to be something he wasn't. He was always a humble citizen, and he was a person who spoke as an equal to everyone. In the interviews, you realize that Pelé is an ordinary citizen and that he was not carried away by his brilliance and apogee, but by the glory that the whole world gave Pelé. Google highlighted the legendary Egyptian writer Isan Abdelkadus today with one of its honorary doodles on its homepage. Kadus was an Egyptian journalist and author who wrote over 20 novels and 600 short stories, making him one of the most prolific and popular Arab writers of the 20th century. He was jailed several times by successive Egyptian rulers and faced multiple assassination attempts. He died in 1990, but his work remains widely read across the Arab world. He's also the grandfather of Democracy Now! correspondent Sharif Abdelkadus, who wrote about his legacy on the Google Doodle page. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, we look at the Republican House adjourning day one without a speaker. Back in a minute. Subject, could we change the subject now? I was knocking on your ears, don't you? We were always out looking towards the future. We were begging for the past. Well, we know we had the good things, but those never seemed to last. Oh, please just last. Everyone's unhappy. Everyone's ashamed Well, we all just got caught looking at somebody else's page Well, nothing ever went quite exactly as we planned Our ideas held no water, but we used them like a dam Miss the Boat by Modest Mouse. The band's co-founder and drummer, Jeremiah Green, died Saturday from cancer. He was just 45. 
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show on Capitol Hill, where far-right lawmakers have blocked Kevin McCarthy's initial attempts to become Speaker of the House. In a dramatic day on Tuesday, the House held three votes to pick a new Speaker. McCarthy fell increasingly short of securing the needed 218 votes, even though Republicans now hold a slim majority in the House. House. On the first two ballots, 19 Republicans opposed McCarthy. On the third ballot, the number of defectors increased to 20. This marks the first time since 1923, a hundred years ago, that voting for Speaker went beyond the first round. During the historic second round of votes, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan nominated Kevin McCarthy for House Speaker uh, for that historic second ballot Tuesday. And after this, Republican Matt Gates rose to nominate Jim Jordan instead. I rise to nominate the most talented, hardest-working member of the Republican conference who just gave a speech with more vision than we have ever heard from the alternative. I'm nominating Jim Jordan. Congressman Gates is the subject of an ongoing Justice Department probe into allegations he was involved in sex trafficking, prostitution and statutory rape. After the third vote, the House voted to adjourn until today at noon. The tellers agree in their tallies that the total number of votes cast is 434, of which the Honorable Hakeem Jeffries of the state of New York has received 212. The Honorable Kevin McCarthy of the state of California has received 202. The Honorable Jim Jordan of the state of Ohio has received 20. No person having received the majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname, a speaker has not been elected. Congressman McCarthy said late Tuesday he has no plans to drop his bid and was inspired to fight to the finish to become House Speaker after a phone call with former President Donald Trump. But what Trump actually told McCarthy was, quote, we'll see what happens. Among the hardline Republicans who say they'll continue to vote no on McCarthy is Lauren Boebert, who spoke to reporters Tuesday. If you go to the American people and ask them if Congress is doing a good job, if they like the way things are run in Washington, D.C., you're probably going to get a big hell no. We want to change the way things are done here. Meanwhile, Republican Congressmember Marjorie Taylor Greene openly attacked her former allies, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, and others over the speaker vote. I haven't asked for one thing for my for myself, and I'm the only Republican that has zero committees. So you would think I would be the one in there asking for something, but I haven't done that. But I find out that it's my uh, Freedom Caucus colleagues and my supposed friends that went and did that, and they asked nothing for me. Nothing. That's what I found out in there. I'm furious. It's unclear how long it could take for the House to pick a speaker. But until one is chosen, the House cannot conduct other business, including the swearing in of new House members. 
For example, Republican Representative-elect George Santos falsely announced Tuesday he was sworn in and later had to delete the press release. Earlier in the day, Santos sat alone as his colleagues in the busy House chamber avoided him. Cameras showed Republican Matt Gates approach Democratic Congressmember Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez to ask if Democrats would bail out McCarthy, as McCarthy reportedly told Republicans. She told Gates there would be no deal. Meanwhile, Democrats were united in their nomination of Congressmember Hakeem Jeffries as House Speaker, making him the first black lawmaker in history to lead a party in Congress and be nominated as House Speaker. Jeffries actually won more votes than McCarthy in the first rounds of votes in the Speaker contest. This is Democratic Congress member Pete Aguilar. Today, Madam Clerk, House Democrats are united. For more on the Republicans shaping Congress, we're joined by Robert Japer. He is a staff writer with The New York Times and author of the new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. His recent New York Times magazine story is headlined, Inside the January 6th Committee, Power Struggles, Resignations, and Made-for-TV Moments, the untold story of the most important congressional investigation in generations. Robert Draper, thanks so much for joining us. Can you talk about this group of far-right Republicans who have stopped McCarthy from becoming House Speaker, at least at this point? You've written an entire book about them. Sure. Um, I've written a couple, actually, about them. This is a train that's been coming down the track uh, for a while. It, it's um, a far-right group, principally members of the House Freedom Caucus, who um, are determined to show uh, to the sort of MAGA base, that um, the, the Trump base that still forms you know, the backbone of the Republican Party, uh, that they're fighters. And exactly what they're fighting for is sort of unclear. They only know what they're fighting against, which in this particular case is Kevin McCarthy, uh, who they've never um, altogether trusted or liked. Uh, McCarthy has offered himself up as someone who will help um, uh, conservatives get what they want, but he himself doesn't possess a similar ideology, and they're all too aware of that. Again, it's unclear, Amy, how this ends, um, but um, but it's been ine- it's been inevitable. It's been quite apparent to those of us um, following what's going on on the Hill uh, that this sort of speaker battle was going to happen, and that McCarthy was not going to get 218 votes on the first and maybe subsequent um, uh, balloting. So tell us individually about these people um, who both supported him. Um, It was surprising to see Marjorie Taylor Greene attacking her colleagues, who she has so often um, uh, banded together with, uh, and who they are, like Paul Gosar of Arizona. Yeah. So it's, uh, you're correct, Amy, that, that, you know, probably the most remarkable development in all of this has been the alliance that Marjorie Taylor Greene has forged with McCarthy, not because, you know, she's deeply um, affectionate toward the guy or something, but instead because she believes that the Republican Party has to stand for something and has to try to accomplish certain things and can't do so without a speaker. And it can't do so without a speaker who under, who has some legislative chops, who's been around the block, as it were. But she finds 
finds herself in opposition to fellow members of the House Freedom Caucus, such as you named um, Paul Gosar, a far-right member of the Arizona uh, delegation, who's been around since the Tea Party days. He was elected in 2010 and has always been something of a marginal character in the House. But when the Stop the Steal uh, uh, imbroglio began following Trump's defeat uh, in November 2020, Gosar led the forefront of it. He was the first person to uh, stand up with a U.S. senator and um, uh, uh, basically reject the certification of the electoral votes in his state of Arizona. So you have um, you have people who are natural allies who are now against each other, and it's gotten quite personal as you were as you were playing before. I mean, Green is quite upset with her colleagues. She feels like they're uh, doing things for their own personal benefit, that they have excluded her from that process, and that there is no end game for them other than to get Plum Committee assignments. And who is Kevin McCarthy? Yeah. Well, McCarthy uh, joined in 2006, I believe, in, and, um, uh, as, and has been— you know, a very ambitious guy uh, climbing to the um, climbing up the leadership chain from really the moment of his arrival. He was uh, the House Majority Whip uh, when the Republicans took power back from the Democrats following the Tea Party election of 2010. And it's been evident um, for those of us on the Hill uh, that McCarthy's had his eye on the Speaker's gavel for some time and uh, came close to getting it in 2014, failed, and now is his opportunity. He's um, uh, the, the problem with McCarthy is, as I referenced before, um, he doesn't have a particular ideology. It's unclear really what he believes in other than um, his own desire to wield power. He has tried to stay close to president, to former President Trump, uh, acting out of the belief that if Trump should oppose the Republicans, that he could really splinter the party for all time. And so he's tried to kind of bring um, uh, Trump into the fold. And uh, and that's part of the reason why he's remained close to Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is sort of the proximate uh, warrior on Capitol Hill to the MAGA movement. But it, it appears right now that uh, McCarthy is trying to play a game of chicken with the far right. Uh, I, I I, if I were McCarthy, though, I'd be concerned in particular about the tepid level of support that he's shown from Don, uh, from Donald Trump, who uh, who spoke with him on the phone last night. McCarthy emerged from that phone conversation saying that Trump gave him his support. We have, however, not heard Trump say that himself. And I think that, you know, what Trump uh, dislikes more than anything is losing and losers and does not want to be associated with a loser. And if it appears that uh, McCarthy bears the taint of someone who's going to go down in defeat, uh, Trump will distance himself uh, from McCarthy very quickly. He's not going to spend whatever is left of his political capital supporting a guy who does not stand a chance of winning. I mean, most of the people who are voting against McCarthy uh, supported insurrectionists. Can you really separate Kevin McCarthy from that? Because although at the time you could tell uh, he was opposed to what was happening on January 6th. Um, he immediately went down to Mar-a-Lago, right, kissed the ring of Donald Trump, and then tried to prevent an investigation into what took place. So he really is together with them. It's hard to separate him. That's right. At the same time, um, Trump recognizes that McCarthy has done everything you've just described, Amy, out of political calculation, <laughs> not out of particular belief. You know, he—there's— uh, 
Very little evidence to suggest that uh, Kevin McCarthy believed that the election was stolen, believed that Trump uh, should um, remain in office through any and all means necessary. There is evidence instead to believe that McCarthy was deeply alarmed by what took place at the Capitol. As I reported in my book, he heatedly said to uh, Trump on the phone that afternoon, they're effing trying to kill me. Uh, and so Trump knows that McCarthy's alliance with him is one of convenience and one of political calculation, uh, not of one of unswerving loyalty. And uh, But I have to say, even if McCarthy were a true diehard loyalist, that means nothing in the world of Donald Trump. Trump is going to stay with someone who makes him look good, who supports his agenda, who's unswervingly loyal to him, and who's a winner. Uh, McCarthy can be all of those other things, but if it appears that he's going to be defeated, then Trump will back away. I want to bring into this conversation with Robert Draper, David Day, an executive editor of American Prospect, where his recent pieces are 2023, a year for executive action, and Democrats frittered away the lame duck session. His piece out today, House GOP tries to cancel congressional staff unions as this Republican-led Congress bogs down in theatrics um, in the executive branch and the Biden administration—let's uh, look at what um, has happened and also what isn't being paid— attention to, uh, David Dayen. Uh, you have, at the same time that all of this is happening, new House rules under Republican control. Can you lay out what they are? Yeah. Uh, they, obviously, they haven't voted on them yet until they vote for a speaker, but there is a rules package that has been set up, and uh, there, there are many things in it, uh, some of them just sort of ornamental, uh, removing the security uh, uh, machinery uh, to go onto the House floor that was put in place after January 6th and things of that nature. But um, one consequential thing, at least for members of uh, the congressional staff, is that uh, a series of, of unions at, at congressional offices that were put in place after a resolution uh, in May that implemented regulations uh, of a 1995 law that allowed uh, congressional staff to organize, uh, the, the, the rules package attempts to eliminate those unions. Uh, there are about 10 offices that have uh, either uh, voted to unionize or set up an election to uh, vote on that, uh, on whether or not to do so. And uh, these are all Democratic offices, about 100 staffers. And uh, this is a, a Republican Party that talks about, uh, you know, being newly uh, emboldened to be for the working class. Uh, uh, you know, people like Senator Josh Hawley have said we have to make the, the Republican Party a workers party. And literally the first thing that they're going to do after they elect a speaker is put forward a rules package to eliminate uh, unions within their own workplace. Uh, so I think it's a, an interesting contrast. And uh, there's, it's not entirely clear that the rules package can even do this, and it might be subject to litigation down the road. And going back to Robert Draper, in addition to your book that's just out, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind, um, you also have a major piece um, in The New York Times magazine. Um, and 
In it, you talk about uh, the January 6th committee. Now, one of the decisions of the Republican leadership, if they end up, uh, if one of them ends up being House Speaker, you know, who knows? At this point, Hakeem Jeffries is the one with the most votes, although he doesn't have the majority. Um, you wrote, inside the January 6th committee, power struggles, resignations, and made-for-TV moments, the untold story of the most important congressional investigation. Um, they will be ending that committee, although it's ended with this uh, last Congress. Talk about, summarize—it uh, was a massive piece—but what we should understand about what this investigation and this committee was all about. Well, sure. I mean, it's, it, I'd say at its baseline, Amy, the January 6th committee was set up to understand um, how the Capitol riot took place, uh, what elements were involved in it, in an effort to prevent any such uh, attempts at insurrection occurring in the future. But as the uh, hearings evolved, it became uh, quite clear that the focus, the, the principal target was uh, the president of the United States at the time, uh, Donald Trump, uh, because it was believed and the evidence was supporting this belief that Trump um, was the principal actor in um, uh, in the insurrection, that it would not have occurred but for his um, but for his deeds uh, in the weeks leading up to and on the day of January the 6th. So that's, you know, that's the evidence that was marshaled. Now that it has disbanded, Republicans are intimating that they're, in essence, going to investigate the investigators, that they're going to look into the files that the January 6th committee uh, gathered but did not necessarily promote in an effort to, for example, suggest that, say, uh, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, was the one who was really responsible for the security failures on January the 6th. This is definitely a double-edged sword. I mean, what, uh, it's certainly true that the so-called blue team of the January 6th committee um, did, uh, did develop a lot of information relating to security lapses that was not emphasized in the final report. At the same time, for this Republican Congress, um, to continue to labor over uh, the misdeeds of Donald Trump, however they wish to explain it, it's just simply going to mean an inability to turn the page and, and to move away, uh, not even so much from Donald Trump, but from a conversation about malfeasance that occurred principally by Republicans uh, you know, up to and on January the 6th. It's not a good look for them, and I think it's a classic case of uh, be careful what you wish for. And, Robert Draper, before you go, because I know you're going up to Capitol Hill to continue interviewing people, there was an astounding moment yesterday where you saw this image of AOC, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, the Congress member from New York, sitting with Paul Gosar, the Arizona congressman who had tweeted out a cartoon where he murdered her. He was censured for this. Um, if we could end our conversation with you by you talking about what you think this group that does not want McCarthy um, uh, uh, as the House Speaker will represent and push forward? And do you think they will gain enormous power in this new House? Sure. I mean, briefly, I mean, what um, what apparently that conversation was about between Gosar and Ocasio-Cortez was that there had been animations from Kevin McCarthy and his allies 
that they had secured pledges from certain Democrats at a certain point to peel away from Hakeem Jeffries and simply vote present, which would lower the threshold and enable uh, uh, McCarthy to gain more votes. Um, and what Ocasio-Cortez was apparently telling Gosar was, nope, no such deal has taken place, nor will any take place. Um, should Gosar, uh, Andy Biggs, and uh, uh, some of the others get what they want, Matt Gates. Uh, what they'll ultimately hope to get is Jim Jordan as speaker. Uh, Jordan has made clear, however, that he uh, not only supports Kevin McCarthy, but he's really not interested in being speaker. After all, who would? I mean, it's, it's a, this is a very, very unruly Republican bunch. And to have to uh, wake up every morning knowing that you're going to be whipping votes, knowing that you're going to try to accommodate this very, very fractious Republican conference is a real headache. I mean, that's why Jordan would rather be the chairman of Judiciary Committee. It's why Patrick McHenry, someone else who is a uh, a McCarthy ally and has been talked about as a fallback option, uh, would rather be chairman of financial services. These guys have taken themselves out of the game because they recognize what a fool's pursuit it would be to try to herd the cats in this Republican conference. Jordan, of course, um, while he says he wants to be head of House Judiciary Committee, um, his past at Ohio State as wrestling coach, where he was accused by one young man after another of knowing about the um, sexual attacks on these young men uh, within the wrestling team. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. I mean, it's uh, that's that um, controversy has followed Jordan for years. It does not seem to have. Uh, uprooted any support for him within the Republican Party. Um, I, I don't think that that's a principal reason why Jordan wants to stay somewhat out of the limelight. In fact, there's you know, plenty of evidence to suggest that he rather enjoys uh, uh, having a lot of attention focused on him. I think it's more that he recognizes that this Republican Party, you know, to answer your question, Amy, isn't really sure what it wants. I mean, they have conservative principles, but what their end game is in trying to oppose Kevin McCarthy suggests more a kind of political performance art than it does any actual purpose or any actual ideological intent. Mm. Uh, And those uh, young wrestlers who accused uh, Congressman Jordan were accusing him of knowing about an abusive uh, Ohio State doctor who sexually assaulted them. Robert Draper, thanks so much for being with us, author of Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Um, David Day, and I wanted to ask you a last question about the piece you wrote, 2023, A Year for Executive action. Talk about what you think needs to happen now. Well, look, uh, in in the last 24 hours, as we've been looking at this farce happening on the House floor, uh, as you mentioned in the headlines, the FDA approved uh, the use of mepristone uh, to be purchased at pharmacies. Uh, There was an extraordinary ruling from the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department saying that U.S. Postal Service could uh, ship Mifepristone, uh, even to red states where abortion is banned. Uh, the banking regulators put out a warning to uh, various banks saying that cryptocurrencies, if they are held in their uh, portfolios, would represent uh, a lack of safety and soundness in, in the banking system. Uh, governing happens other than in places uh, like Capitol Hill. Uh, and the, uh, the Biden administration and, and Congress passed major laws like the infrastructure bill, uh, which uh, Biden is going to be speaking about today, uh, like the Inflation Reduction Act, which has this extraordinary amount 
of funding for uh, the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, like uh, the Chips and Science Act for semiconductor manufacturing. And all of those have to be implemented. And uh, so the next year, next two years, isn't going to be about legislative action. Obviously, the, the, the House can't even figure out who to, who to run it. But it, it can be a time of, of real governing changes as these big laws get implemented. And whether or not they're implemented in particular ways that benefit uh, corporate interests, or not is very critical. Uh, after the passage of the Dodd-Frank law, the financial reform, lobbyists said that this was halftime and that in the second half, they would go to the various regulatory agencies and try to uh, mold the, the rules that have to be written out of that law to their particular interests. And we're going to see that again. And it's critical to, to cover this aspect of the story, this second half, uh, to shed some light on the fact of, of what these lobbyists and, and, and corporate interests are doing to try to mold uh, these various laws and, and whether or not they're going to meet the full potential that the Biden administration wants. So uh, uh, I, I, to me, that is the, the story of the next year. David Day, I want to thank you for being with us, executive editor of The American Prospect. We'll link to your articles next up. Buffalo Bills' Damar Hamlin remains in critical condition in a Cincinnati hospital two days after he suffered a cardiac arrest on the field Monday night. We'll speak with former NFL player Dante Stallworth, who was at the game, saw Hamlin collapse, and longtime sports journalist William Roden, author of $40 Million Slaves, the Rise, fall, and redemption of the black athlete. Stay with us. If you see me walking down the street and I start to cry each time we meet, walk on This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Buffalo Bills football player DeMar Hamlin remains in critical condition in the Cincinnati hospital two days after he suffered cardiac arrest on the field Monday night during a game against the Cincinnati Bengals. The 24-year-old collapsed after making a tackle. Medical staff administered CPR, used a defibrillator to restore his pulse before bringing an ambulance onto the field. The game indefinitely suspended as other players wept. Damar Hamlin was rushed to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, where he is now, according to his family. Hamlin is sedated on a ventilator after having been resuscitated twice on the field. 
A large vigil was held for him in Buffalo on Tuesday. DeMar Hamlin's injury came just minutes after the Buffalo Bills defensive back, Taron Johnson, left the game with a head injury. And just days after Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tagovailoa uh, suffered his third head injury of the season following a concussion that left him hospitalized in week four. We're joined right now by two guests, William Roden, longtime sports journalist, author of $40 Million Slaves, The Rise, Fall and Redemption of the Black Athlete. He was a columnist for The New York Times until 2016, now a columnist with ESPN's Anscape. And Dante Stallworth is with us, sports commentator and former NFL player who spent 10 years in the league. Dante, let's begin with you. You were watching the game, um, this, to say the least, highly unusual moment, the one athlete after another so often must leave for injuries. Um, to see this happen on the field, talk about your response to what took place on Monday night. My initial response when this happened, I was horrified. I was watching it live from my couch. I had actually taken a nap prior to that to make, and I set my alarm to make sure that I was awake to watch this huge game. Two of the best teams in the NFL about to play a very important game with a huge magnitude of, of uh, playoff implications. When I saw this happen to DeMar, I knew immediately that something was amiss. Something was different about this type of injury. We've seen players break bones, uh, tear ligaments, get concussed, and those are all horrifying injuries, but it's unfortunately a part of the brutal game that we play. When you saw DeMar fall and you saw him collapse after he had already gotten up, after what was a routine play in the NFL, wasn't anything vicious or egregious or illegal about this play. It was a routine NFL play, a normal tackle. Both, both players got up. DeMar collapsed back to the ground. And I immediately looked to the reaction of the players. And as the minutes went by, you couldn't see what was happening on the field with DeMar, but you saw the players' visceral reaction to what was happening in front of their faces. And that, to me, told the entire story. It told me that these players were witnessing something traumatic that they'd never seen before. Out of all the injuries that you have in the NFL, out of all the egregious things that we've seen, the, the emotions on the players let me know that this was something traumatic that they were experiencing that was unprecedented. Bill Roden, um, I think the name, the title of your book is so telling. $40 million slaves. You actually were in Baltimore covering a man with another, a player with another injury. And how many people know that right before uh, DeMar collapsed, another Buffalo Bills player was taken off the field with a head injury, Taron Johnson. If you can put this all together for us, I mean, talking about a violent game. Yeah, uh, Hey, hey, Amy. Hey, uh, Dante. Happy New Year, uh, quote unquote. Uh, you know, I, I'm still trying to put this together. I think everybody's still trying to process this. And frankly, Amy, you know, uh, I was, I've been doing a series of pieces on Lamar Jackson and his whole thing about betting on himself and how he's injured. And, you know, I've been spending the last 48 hours, frankly, doing a lot of soul searching, a really lot of soul Because I, one of the things I realized is that I've been covering this stuff almost 40 years. And in the process of covering 
you know, the NFL, knowing guys who played, uh, that I, I realized as a journalist, I've become a little desensitized to it. As Dante said, you know, you're kind of used to, you know, uh, almost every other play. You know, guys going down, the players, you know, get around him on one knee. Many times they'll go off under their own power. Sometimes will be helped off, sometimes carted off. And, you know, the, the fans will applaud. And then you're on to the next play, you know. And, you know, I was uh, filing my story and watching this in a, in, a, in a cafe. And then one commercial came by. And I was like, okay, right. Then two, then three. And I was like, oh, man. Because I'd been, I was always thought, I said, what would ever happen if a player died on the field? in a high-profile NFL game. Because all of a sudden, you know, we talk about the violence of the game and all that, but I think for a lot of people, the kind of violence is kind of cartoon characters. cartoon characters, you know, that is not really real. I think fantasy football helps for that, the whole betting. And, um, you know, I, I, and, and, and right now I think the problem is we don't really know. So I'm really focused on, hey, I hope, man, I hope that, I hope that this young man is okay. Uh, but moving forward, and maybe Dante can speak to this, you know, how do you even begin to play again? Remember, I don't know if you noticed it, but shortly thereafter, the, the whole Buffalo defensive uh, unit was getting ready to head back on the field. Somebody had said kind of, well, let's give them some warm-up time. And then I think at some point, maybe even Troy Vincent, somebody said, you cannot continue playing this game. You know, you cannot continue playing this game. So now I think moving forward, how does the NFL, which is this huge, they, the NFL prints money. They print money. You know, you've got TV contracts. As Dante said, you've got all these things that hinge on outcomes and seedings and standings. You've got the Super Bowl coming up and playoffs. Now, how does the NFL begin to balance, continue to play the games? You know, and how do players process this? If the Buffalo and Cincinnati players said, you know, we can't play another game. You know, so um, my immediate concern and prayer is that um, uh, this young man pulls out of this and that there is some type of good news. But then moving forward, what are the conversations we're having in the, in, 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 in the, in the breach, in the silence? What kind of conversations are we having about this game? You know, um, it, it's... Well, why don't we talk about that, Bill? I mean, you have sort of not exactly joked, but said, what are we going to call for the banning of the game? Why not? Well, yeah, go ahead, uh, Dante. Okay, Dante. Uh, Well, I think that when you look at just the importance of the health of DeMar Hamlin, I, I, I also want to reiterate, too, that we're obviously pushing for the best case scenario, which is that he can resume a normal and healthy life. Forget the NFL, forget playing again. If if he's able, somehow able to do that, that's obviously great, and that's his decision. And if he wants to do that, if he's able to. But the most important thing is that he's able to resume a normal and, and healthy life again. That is the that is the best possible outcome here. And these injuries that we've seen players taking. You know, over the past few decades, especially with with all that we've learned in 2012 and so on, with the more of the research that we've kind of learned about through concussions, through brain injuries, these are tough injuries. But these are injuries that that happen in front of our eyes. But then, you know, 
These players are carted off and the game resumes. I do want to tip my hat to the NFL in general, and I would say more specifically the head coaches of the Cincinnati Bengals and the Buffalo Bills and subsequently the players. They weren't going back out there regardless of whatever was whatever the NFL was going to say or not going to say about the game resuming, about the game being resumed uh, in, in the next 24 hours or in the next 36, 48 hours. The players uh, were traumatized, and their coaches saw this, and they both got together and said, hey, we're, we're going to go to the locker room and speak to the officials, speak to the head umpire, and speak to officials in the NFL, and basically reiterate to them that they're not able to mentally go back out. So to answer your earlier question, I'm not really sure how the players from especially the Buffalo Bills, but also the Cincinnati Bengals as well, I don't know how they go out and play a game this weekend. I, I really don't. I, I know that, you know, we have this mentality in the NFL, and it's it's pretty uh, accustomed to being an NFL player where you have this mentality that next guy up, you know, a guy gets hurt. Uh, regardless of what that injury is, you know, there's got to be a next man up that's got to fill his role and, and, and be that piece in the puzzle to help the team win a game. And that's something that we've compartmentalized mental issues, mental health issues. We've compartmentalized uh, physical pain to be able to go out and, and, and fulfill that next man up uh, problem that we have in the NFL. So it's really difficult to, to tell how a, a player can go out and play that witnessed this firsthand that was on the field watching the uh, medical professionals and the medical staff administer CPR for several minutes to DeMar Hamlin. It's these guys are going to be changed forever, and it's going to—it's really going to be interesting to see how the NFL proceeds moving forward. And how the NFL deals with issues like, for example, what's happening with Tua just a few days before Miami Dolphin, um, the whole issue of the concussion protocol and how it's been enforced. I mean, that a game even needs this. I mean, it's a collision sport. You have soccer, the beautiful game. You have football, the violent game. Bill Roden, if you could talk about this, um, how uh, players are diagnosed. I mean, how many people know, I'm repeating myself, but that Taron Johnson was taken off just a few minutes before uh, DeMar went down. Yeah, and, and that gets to the larger point. You know, um, it, it almost becomes like I, I keep mentioning this word desensitized, you know, that, yeah, uh, you, you had one or two injuries. And it's OK, you know, um, he's there, he's taken off. OK, as, as Dante said, next man up, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, the young man who was hurt um, was DeMar. next man up. Yeah, DeMar was next man up. Remember, that's why he was in the lineup. He was the next man up because he was taking the place uh, of, of, of Mika uh, of Fitzpatrick, I believe. Right. Uh, and he was the next man up. And I think that. Uh, whether it's in football or all of us, I mean, that's sort of a metaphor. You know, everybody is kind of a replaceable part. But to your, the larger point is where does the NFL go? You're not going to change the nature of the game. You're really not going to change the nature of the game. If there are games this weekend, there are going to be guys who are not getting up. There are going to be guys who are getting carted off. There are going to be serious injuries. Um, and the larger question is, what do you do? You know, we're not you know, and we're not banning the game anytime soon, you know. So, um, 
like I said, I'm in the middle of this soul searching. I remember at the uh, I was at the Kentucky Derby when eight bells died uh, at the Kentucky Derby. And I've been very critical of the horse racing industry. And after that happened, I said, you know, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. The way they shoot up horses, they treat them. And I, at near the end of, of uh, I was at the New York Times for 34 years. And near the end of 2016, with the concussions and what we were beginning to find out about what the owners knew about concussions and how they were hiding it. You know, I was almost at the point then, I said, you know what, I'm done with this, man. You know, this is just, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that a lot of people are, you know, leasing their bodies and they're getting generational wealth. You know, there's an exchange. I lease the team, my body, I get paid and keep my fingers crossed that I could have a 10 year career and kind of get out of it unscathed. But, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, the larger question now, while we're waiting to hear what happens, uh, you know, um, where does the league go from here? And I, I guarantee you, I would love to hear those conversations, you know, between the, uh, the TV execs, the uh, NFL people about how do we play these games? How do we keep ourselves on schedule? And, and, and I think Dante mentioned, it. I think, um, this is another conversation for another show, but to me, this is kind of also about guaranteed contracts. The NFL is the only major league whose players do not have guaranteed contracts, and NFL players, more than any other team sport, deserve guaranteed contracts. You know, um, you, you know, you should if you play this game, you should be taken care of. You should be your contract should be guaranteed. And again, this really isn't the time to talk about that, but I do think that this is something really worth fighting for. The owners are saying that this is a hill they're going to die on. They're not going to do what the NBA does. They're not going to do what Major League Baseball does. But these players, if you look at, at what happens every single game, every single week, you know, these players need to be protected, and they need to be protected. Interesting. Bill, interesting the term you use. This is the hill they're going to die on. Well, athletes are dying. Um, and I was wondering if Dante could respond to that. Also, looking at a piece in The Times from last year, with the addition of a 17th regular season game on top of the two extra playoff games the league added last year, the NFL negotiated substantially higher rates for its media rights. The new deals, which total more than 100 billion dollars, nearly double the amount of the expiring contracts. What's at stake here? Yeah, there's a lot at stake. Obviously, you know, with the NFL being a multi-billion dollar corporation, uh, lots of money is at stake. But I, I do think that in this moment, with, with this incident being so unprecedented, um, I'm as skeptical as they come when it comes to multi-billion dollar corporations, no matter who they are, no matter that I'm a former player myself and still enjoy watching the game and still involved in the game uh, by speaking with teams and things of that nature. But, you know, I, I do want to first, like, give the NFL some kudos, you know, that they, they haven't they they've kind of earned the natural skepticism when anything like this of this nature happens. They've earned that over the years. But, you know, the fact that they canceled the game or they, they postponed the game and then said that the game wouldn't be played within the week, uh, they're taking the steps, I, I think, to pretty much show that this is an unprecedented situation. And I think everything right now is fluid. But I, but I do want to say, too, to, to mention uh, kind of piggybacking, you know, about players and players' health, 
DeMar Hamlin was only in his second year. He is not a vested player. To be vested, you have to play, I believe it's three years plus three games. So essentially, you have to be in your fourth year and play three games to become vested. Uh, you have to play uh, three games in three years to receive a pension. You also have to play three years and three games to receive the five years of uh, health care that the NFL uh, that the NFL uh, gives to players after they retired. So he has not he's not, he has not uh, been a vested player. So it, it'll it, there's a lot of things that are at play here. Um, unfortunately for the NFL for the NFL players. Uh, that that is something that can't be changed, I guess, until the new collective bargaining agreement, which they just had one last year or the year before. But we have, those are the things that I'm concerned we about. We have right to leave now. it there. I want to thank you, Dante Stallworth, as well as William Roden, author of Forty Million Dollar Slaves, for joining us. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman.